0: Coming up on the Shift Daily Podcast, what is an incel? Dr. Michael Halpin from Dalhousie University shares research into the extremist group, and we get an understanding of the power of the dark parts of the internet, social anxiety, and more. Scientists think we could theoretically build the USS Enterprise from Star Trek, so how close are we to building super spaceships and sci-fi wonders? Weird Science host Andrew Ferreira gives us some answers. Plus, are you okay with ranch dressing? This is the Shift Podcast. Are you okay? Are you okay with fuel efficiency? Mm,
1: yes, in theory. I mean, yeah, but uh, I also have a desire to hear a car rev and inhale, like, a tank of gas in one second. It just sounds so awesome, and it's so cool. It's terrible for the environment, but it's awesome.
0: I'm glad that you mentioned that, because, like, you actually, you know what I'm doing during the commercials here? I'm researching Harley Davidson's. Because oh, I, <laughs> yeah, not the epitome of fuel efficiency. I no, imagine. but it just I mean, and I mean, to each their own. But that's the sound and the just you know the my my family are car people, and my dad is a car guy, and you know V eight muscle, uh, hot rod, burn some rubber, let's do it. But also fuel efficiency is great too. Brendan Kelly.
1: Yeah, same with with Ryan. Fuel efficiency is great. It's great for the environment. It's great for your wallet and all that stuff. But I absolutely just love a, you know, top fuel dragster and the NHRA going down the quarter mile in like three seconds and it just burns the whole tank. So great. Fantastic. Some of the technology, the Bugatti Veyron, the the first Veyron they made, that car, when you put the accelerator down, the engine sucks in more air than you will breathe in an entire year.
0: See that—that's a, that yeah. a stat that I didn't know. That's a stat right? that I didn't know. And maybe this is the thing that that gets us about cars. We talked a lot about cars last night. Uh, it's a marvel of engineering, right? The things that they do and that goes into like making these things—you know—a tenth of a second quicker, and uh, it's incredible. That that original Veyron that you're talking about, Ryan uh it could go what was the top? So it's like 418 kilometers an hour or something Two, right yeah i think the top who was
1: 250 253 miles an hour miles an hour, an hour yeah. yeah
0: and so. uh they said it would burn it would burn through a, a tank of gas and something like a couple of minutes. Yeah. But if you were putting it down flat out, it would run out of gas in, I think 13 minutes, but it was like, it wouldn't even matter because the tires would incinerate before, (laughs) before (laughs) the 13 minutes was even up. So fuel efficiency, a wonderful thing. But also uh, power as created by gasoline and the internal combustion engine, also a wonderful thing. Well, the average price of gas in Canada, about two bucks and 10 cents. So with that in mind, you might be considering other modes of transportation. And a man in the. UK was seen filling his gas tank up with vegetable oil. Now, Uh-oh. is that possible? Vegetable oil? Yes and no. Mythbusters tried it out.: The engine is purring perfectly. And if we don't meet again, I love you. They're off.
1: Remember, this is unmodified French fry oil. The restaurants up and down the country chuck out. It
0: seems to be running just fine.
1: They do the laps and get an MPG of 30, which for something that didn't cost a dime is pretty darn impressive. One, I'm surprised and impressed that the car runs on just straight filtered used kitchen
0: oil. But number two, the fuel efficiency—it's only 10 percent less than, you know, regular diesel fuel. Yeah, that's cool. I remember this one. It was a Mercedes, a Mercedes diesel, and yeah, because it has that, to be a diesel. Yes, it has to be a diesel. But I mean, that, it's still incredible. Like diesel cars, like they're not—it's not like they're super rare. You can find them. They exist, and there there are uh, lots of uh, the conversion kits that, like, we're talking about here to convert your car to run on fryer oil, uh, but they just did it. They just put it in there, and and uh, and it worked. I remember this story. Uh, this gentleman has been doing this for years. Performance is very good. You know, once it's mixed in, you, you get a slight smell of cooking from the exhaust, but apart from that, no, it is, it's very, very good, and... Uh, There's no problems, no stalling, no anything. It goes like a rocket, in fact. Okay, does this mean that we should all be doing this? No. One person posted, to use vegetable oil, you need a heater in the fuel system and also the glycerine in the oil will eventually clog up the fuel system and homogenize the engine lubrication oil. The only way it works is to convert it to biodiesel using toxic and dangerous chemicals. You need separate fuel pumps, heaters, and so much more. But yes, it can work. So, essentially, we would need to redesign the car, and then, of course, we'd also need to come up with a system. I'm reminded of the episode of The Simpsons where uh, they, they, Homer and Bart take over the grease racket. Right, and the mafia oh, comes yeah. after them. Right, you right. remember that one? They like have the, they're like sucking the grease out of the fryers at the schools oh. into the back of the <laughs> station wagon. But yeah. that's essentially what this is. Uh, if you've ever worked in a restaurant, like a fast food place, or uh, uh, there is, there's tons of this stuff out there being thrown away. So it does make a lot of sense, right? It's a way to recycle it, a way to reuse it, uh, and and cut out burning fuel. But again, much like we talked about with the electric car thing last night, uh, the infrastructure is just not there yet, you know? <laughs> yeah, like I don't know if you've seen <laughs> Yeah, totally. I don't know if you've seen any of the the there's YouTube videos and stuff of this of the guys who they basically cut a deal with the, these restaurants and they go and get this used oil And then they're in their garage, like, pouring it through a filter to filter out the used little bits of, like, fried chicken and French fries or or whatever. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And it doesn't make that awesome sound that we were talking about before. Harley-Davidson. It
1: it made a sound. It was strange. I just – I wonder if the smell – I bet if I was going to pick an oil, though, to fuel my car, I would go to Five Guys. So then my – uh, a car <laughs> would smell like peanut fry oil, and that would be
0: pretty, pretty good. Is that is that what they use, is peanut fry oil? Yeah, it's all peanut oil. And yeah, Five Guys? So is it supposed to be vegetarian? Is that is that the deal? No, it's just, it's just good. It's just, it's just it's better. amazing.
1: And do not ever walk into a Five Guys if you are allergic to peanuts.
0: It's like in the air. <laughs> so we not, gotta keep and my that's brother not funny. There. It's not funny, but it's it, it, the fact that it's in the air. Uh, best fast food place?
1: Oh uh, man, I, I think my go-to will always be McDonald's. Yes, There's numero uno with a bullet. No.
0: Don't even step, Brendan Kelly. I don't. I don't really
1: eat fast food anymore. Uh, McDonald's coffee is good. I like that. They do have
0: a good brew there. <laughs> They're Pretty boring. Good. They yeah, do have nice a good brew. coffee. How about Freshie? Do you go to Freshie? Feels uh, like it's up yeah, your alley. Well, yeah, it's
1: been a couple of years now, but I yeah, yeah. If I would get fast food like when I had a day
0: job and could go out for lunch, yeah, like sure. Freshie. Something like that. Okay. In-N-Out Burger is good, too. I like In-N-Out Burger. Get down to Las Vegas. It's worth a trip. All right. Are you okay with timing? Yes. I like, yeah. Good like timing. Robin Williams well, a master of timing, Well-timed. You know, like yes. that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Every good joke is about timing, comedic timing. But this story very much not a joke and yet has some of the worst timing possible. Manitoba Premier Heather Stephenson, Stephenson is apologizing for celebrating her son's hockey victory while answering a question about a woman's death. Opposition NDP leader Wab Kinu Am I saying that right? Sorry if I'm not. Has been pushing for an inquest into the death of Crystal Mosu, a COVID 19 patient who died last year while being transported out of the province for medical care. And here's the Premier's response.
2: Before I get to uh, the member's question, I just wanted to say that sometimes it's uh, we need to. Remember that we need to take time to celebrate our kids, and and last night uh, it was a proud mom moment for me. It was a proud parent moment for both my husband and I when uh, we were at a a hockey rink in Selkirk, and Tommy and his high school hockey team were playing the St. Paul's Crusaders, and they were they they uh, defeated the Westwood Warriors to become the Manitoba Provincial High School Hockey Champions, uh, Madam Speaker. I just want to uh, congratulate Tommy, all his team members, and the coach, Andrew Harder, uh, for their victory last night, uh, Madam Speaker. It's an exciting day for uh, for our family, and uh, just thank you for, uh, for the opportunity to say a few words about that, Madam Speaker. What I will say, uh, Madam Speaker, with respect to this, um, of course, uh, I did uh, the, the member opposite ask these questions yesterday. The member's time has expired.
0: Yeah. Come can you? On. Yes. come. I agree. <laughs> come on. Oh, okay. Wow. Why do you clap? Why do you clap there? It's, uh. it's just I think it's just muscle memory. I think you've been doing those mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. for Mr. so long yeah. that like when someone says the time is up, people clap. And it's not a good luck. I agree. But
1: (laughs) like kind of here in the background towards the end, like the sort of unrest mumbling, sort of getting louder and louder. Like people were like, why, why are you, why are you talking about this right now? Yeah. Yeah. Right now. That's the key thing. It's fine to celebrate that. That's cool. But was that the moment to do it? Was that the second you went, I'm going right in? I know. It's time to celebrate little Johnny's big old hockey game Yeah, right after this. Come on. Yeah. The
0: room. Timing. Timing, right? Stephenson says her remarks were ill-timed, and she is sorry.
1: Notice a statement, Stephenson says, quote, First and foremost, my thoughts go out to Crystal Mousseau's family as they grieve the loss of their loved one. I recognize the timing of my comment about... My family was misplaced, and for that, I sincerely apologize. Now, Stephenson did eventually answer the question she was asked by Canoe, but political science professor Kelly Saunders not impressed with the Premier's actions the leader of the opposition is standing up and drawing attention to a very important tragic issue uh, and to use that as a moment to grandstand and, and talk about, you know, uh, to shift the conversation onto her own family is, is such a disjust, uh, disjustice to this young woman and, uh, and the very serious concerns that I think uh, Wab Canoe was trying to raise.
0: <sighs> yeah. <laughs> <It's a kid. laughs> I, I, I'm, I feel terrible. Ha- uh, t- yes, right? So well-timed. Are you okay? Are you okay with ranch dressing? Oh,
1: yeah, absolutely. It's the, it is the pinnacle of dressing. It's like if I'm having pizza, and like, you, know, you know, like not fancy pizza. If I'm having like Panago. Know, Panago or Pizza Hut or whatever, there must be ranch. If I'm having honey garlic wings, there must be ranch. I will always like to be ranched up,
0: Brendan Kelly. Yeah, I don't like ranch dressing. It's good. It goes well with carrots. I am. I am a no on the ranch dressing. I want no <gasps> really? ranch dressing. Ooh. I find it. Dis- I. I can't. I just can't. It's so <laughs> really? bad. It's so bad. And I. I can't talk about ranch dressing and maybe this is why because it didn't always feel this way but you know when you were like young and dumb at parties and someone would be like i'll give you five dollars to eat this thing my friend justin somebody said i'll give you 25 dollars to drink an entire bottle of ranch dressing and i like i i can picture myself in the in the we went, all went into the bathroom because there was a concern that it was going to make a big mess. Uh-huh. So he's like standing in the bathtub, considering <laughs> no. whether whether or not he should actually do this. And the twenty five dollars is on the vanity, and people are like, "Do it, do it!" And someone else is like, "Don't do it, ju- like don't do it." And he's kind of holding it, like looking around the room hesitantly, and then just like with with one hundred percent enthusiasm. Just, like, straight up, like, That's head back, oh, and yeah. just started guzzling it down. And it was, it, it smelled like ranch dressing. It was so much. I just, and also, I, I don't get it on pizza, because pizza is so good on its own, why, yeah. why but- add a, a thing that makes it taste like something else? It's an extra flavor. I mean, look, I've also
1: been in a ranch chugging scenario myself. Oh, uh, no. a little bit of a different scenario. Oh. Do tell. Me do, and my friend, we have
0: time. Tell
1: we. <laughs> my friend has a crazy high spice tolerance, and so he had um, Carolina Reaper hot yeah. sauce, which I yes. think is now the second hottest pepper in the world. I, I swear I put two drops on my pulled pork, and it was immediate. I've made a horrible mistake, and my my friend Jamie. We both did it. and We're dying. And, you know, so the instinct is water, which doesn't help. So you do milk. He didn't have much milk left. I finished the milk and I look behind me and Jamie has opened a bottle of ranch dressing and is drinking <laughs> ranch dressing to get the spice yeah. out of his mouth. Interesting thing. It did work. It worked.
0: Wow. It okay. It, Good to so, know. I've heard. I still
1: like ranch. Yeah. I've heard bad things <laughs> about like the it.
0: Carolina Reaper. It's like, yeah, the savage. Uh, all right. There's been a bit of weird meme culture around ranch dressing, right? The stuff that we're talking about right now, and mm-hmm. this case in point. Ranch me, <laughs> Time
1: for some ranch.
0: <laughs> That's the one and only Eric Andre. It tastes amazing yeah. on wings, pizza. So says Ryan, not says Scott. So says and it makes for meme material. But would you wear something made from ranch? Well, now you can. Hidden Valley Ranch has created the ultimate piece of jewelry, a diamond made from pure ranch. It's sold on eBay for over (laughs) $12,000. Forget about trying to make three months' salary last forever. To make the ranch ring, the company heated some of their ranch seasoning to 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit crushed the output graphite beneath 400 tons of pressure, and then waited five months. According to Hidden Valley, this unique gemstone is the ultimate expression of true love and the first of its kind human-made diamond created from ranch. The brilliant cut stone is set in a 14 karat white gold band and, of course, has HVR-LVR engraved inside the band. I would simply like to say it's not a diamond, it's ranch dressing. They're saying it's like a diamond, <laughs> <Yes>. right? <laughs> right. <laughs> They're like, point. this is a diamond. It's made from ranch. Well, then it's not a diamond. Okay, it's compressed ranch dressing.
1: <laughs> <It's-> <laughs> oh, oh, look at the wedding ring. I know. What kind of rock is that? Ranch,
0: you, sister. You would not believe me if I told you. And yeah. I mean, like, I, uh, f- uh, I was expecting more than twelve thousand dollars. Right. Me too, actually. When I
1: when I was first started writing the story, the bidding started, I think, 500 and it was five <laughs> days of bidding. And it got to but still 12 grand. Uh, Man, who is had, totally. Like, can you imagine just having that much money where you go? What would you spend your money on today? I bought a diamond. Ring made of ranch I bought a diamond. Almost as dumb as this an is NFT. this would almost. be
0: the almost totally. This would be the accurate way to say it. I bought a diamond shaped ring made of ranch. Yes. A diamond, a, a piece of ranch compressed into the shape of a diamond. I'm disgusted. This is the shift podcast. One of the things that I love about this uh, opportunity to step in and to host is to check out things that I think are important and interesting and to educate myself about them. Stuff that is both entertaining, but also stuff that I think is kind of important. And uh, this is one of those uh, stories When you think about terrorism, it can be kind of a a scary thing. And I saw an article earlier this week, uh, new Secret Service report details growing incel terrorism threat. Now, we're all familiar with terrorism in one way or another, but I was not so sure about this word incel. Have you heard that? Do you know what that is? It's okay if you don't, because I didn't, like I said, I didn't really understand either, but I did some digging and wanted to make sure that I kind of knew what I was talking about, and that uh, led me into something of a, of a rabbit hole uh, on the internet, and it's, it's an interesting topic that I think deserves to be discussed, so uh, here now to help us understand the threat of incels and incelism and what that is and what we can do about it, is uh, assistant professor from the Department of Sociology and Social Anthropology at Dalhousie University, uh, Michael Halpin. He researches things like medical sociology, mental health, social isolation, and social psychology. So thanks so much for being here, uh, Dr. Halpin. Uh, Let me just start by asking this. What is an incel
3: yeah absolutely and it's a very fair question i think um there's there's uh pockets of incels on the internet and not everyone has had experience with them and once you have experience with them you kind of don't forget who they are uh but in general incel is short for involuntarily celibate Uh, it actually started as a community uh, uh operated run founded by a canadian woman um, over time, the, the uh, predominantly online community, so the, the term incel at that point in time was just descriptive. It was just people who wanted sexual or romantic relationships and were unable to have one for whatever reason. It could be uh, you know, shyness or uh, they felt that they weren't physically attractive or they were isolated, what have you. Uh, over time, the, the community, the online communities for incels became uh, primarily populated by men, and they started skewing towards uh, more and more hostility towards women, more and more misogynistic discourse. And that kind of leads us up to more or less where, where the United States government report is coming from. Uh, over the last decade or so, there's been a number of really prominent uh, attacks committed by people who were incels or identify as incels. Elliot Rogers in Isla Vista, California is the real famous one. Uh, he murdered six people. He had a lot of videos on YouTube where he he talked about how lonely he was, how frustrated he was that he couldn't get a girlfriend. And he's also ex- an exceptionally narcissistic person talking about how you know women should come up to him and approach him. And he's entitled to to a romantic relationship and uh, other people aren't. Alec Manassian in Toronto is is where this uh, really kind of touched Canada dramatically in the first way. Uh, he murdered 10 people in Toronto. And then Jake Davison, uh, very recently in the United Kingdom, uh, also murdered five people. So there, aside from that, there's other attacks that are attributed to incels. There's failed attacks that are attributed to incels. Canada has been discussing incels as a domestic terror threat since Alec Manassian, basically. And the United States is now coming along Um a similar perspective that we're having and looking at them as as groups of people who are motivated uh, primarily to attack women, but society at large.
0: Hmm. So, OK, one of the first things, <clears throat> excuse me, that you say there that grabs me is so this is like a an online um, community. And I think that that highlights. OK, so first the power of uh, the internet, which we didn't yeah. have to deal with, you know, so many years ago. And in one sense, I think, the okay, so there's a bunch of people out there who just to use one of the words that you use, maybe they're shy, they're dealing with this idea of I'm shy, and I don't really know how to uh, approach somebody be it male, female, whatever. And we think that um, building a community around that is something that would be helpful, like, yeah. a, like a support group, or, um, that's sort of the traditional idea behind community groups around, around these things, but for, and I don't, and again, maybe you can help with this. I don't know if it's the internet or the fact that it's shyness specifically, but for whatever reason, this sort of community group or support group has led these people into an even darker place.
3: Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think a lot of it is how online spaces work is why that's happened. So, one of the things uh, that's very peculiar about incels when you first start studying them is that they, um, they ban, if you leave the incels, so like if you, you lose your incel status, if you have a date with somebody, or if you have sex with somebody, you're kicked out of the community. Hmm. So the community keeps itself um, really cloistered amongst people who have Um, no romantic experiences, very few interactions with women and people who are primarily like angry and hostile. People who start deviating from that get banned very quickly, even to the extent that people who talk about, uh, you know, we're not going to be like this forever. There's hope for us. We can do self-improvement. Those people also get kicked out of the community. And that's a real feature of online discourse because you can ban people so easily. So, as people who don't fit the kind of monoculture, the echo chamber of these websites, get get kicked out pretty promptly. And it what it leaves is the the group of people who were who were uh, entitled, who were angry, who were upset. They also have, um, you know, as we were talking about with their shyness, they also have very negative opinions of themselves and their own bodies. Uh, they see themselves as as very ugly men, they talk about their bodies in ways that, uh, I've never actually heard other men talk about like that. Your wrist size is demonstrative of how masculine you are. And they mm. will measure and compare wrist sizes and eyebrow ridges. And like your nose alone could make, could preclude you from ever being attractive to a woman. Um, and so th- they end up being, uh, very much an echo chamber focused on, uh, really undermining each other's Confidence and self-esteem, but also expressing hostility towards women, to sexually successful successful men, and then the rest of the people in society who they refer to as as normies.
0: Hmm. And like that part is so interesting because, it, and again, uh, to me, it as a as a sort of layperson, it appears like okay, these people are banning together because there's a thing about themselves that they don't like, but they're choosing to champion the community over. Uh, self-improvement and and getting uh, healing this part of themselves that they don't like. So well, I guess my question is, what do you think it is that that I, it's almost like the initial cause of, of coming out and and saying, hey, I have this issue or I have this this thing that I would like help with uh become secondary now to the to the community. So what do you think it is that causes that that desire for relationships or that desire to 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 meet people or to be social or sexual uh now all of a sudden it's t- that was the 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 genesis of this thing but it feels like now it's taken a back seat to this community.
3: Yeah, and I mean they're they're different than a lot of other communities uh that feel like they're disadvantaged. A lot of other disadvantaged communities kind of work to address the the issues of like their oppression or inequality or what what have you and they're not really focusing on that they're focusing on like why they're angry why they're enraged and they they deliberately try to get each other angry and miserable Hmm. um i think many of the things that they point out like the it's difficult with incels because i do not want to uh when i'm talking about the in a moment here, the, the the perspectives that they have that make sense. I don't want to underemphasize the fact that they're they're very very misogynistic and they're being connected to domestic terrorism in Canada, and the United States for good reasons. That said, many of the complaints that these these men have are kind of reflective of of social changes that are ongoing. There are more men who are um, who are remaining virgins for longer periods of time. Uh, there are more men and women. Uh, who are reporting not having had sex in the previous year, there's more uh, men who were living at home with their parents for longer periods of time. So some of the things that they they're talking about, and they might feel unsatisfied without their lives are, are kind of broader social trends and mm-hmm. um, uh, they they reflect some of the changes that are going on in society. That said, not all guys who are going through those experiences end up going down this incel kind of rabbit
0: hole. Yeah. Well, I was going to, all those things that you list off, like ideally there shouldn't be anything wrong with living with your parents or choosing not to have sex or, or even if you don't choose it, just like not having sex that I think that should be seen as like, Hey, that's okay. That happens all the time. Right.
3: Yeah. And they're definitely not getting that message that it's okay to like to be like a 21 year old guy and be a virgin. They, they they definitely do not feel okay about it. They feel that it's reflective of the fact that they're basically failed men. And as they say, they're going to be forever alone. So Mm. it's, you know, if you're an incel, if you haven't had sex by the time you're like 20, 21, 22, there's no chance for you. That was the the prime period of time that you had. It's only going to get worse. And you, you have no potential to leave that status. So, so they, they, don't do anything to really de-stigmatize their their own social category. If anything, they kind of pile on to themselves.
0: Yeah, and it's funny because like one of the, you know, we're sort of talking about culture's influence here. And uh, one of the things that just sort of crossed my mind as we're kind of talking about this is, and I'm sure you hear this, it's like that movie, The 40-Year-Old Virgin. Yeah. Right? And it's like... <laughs> And I feel like like I'm a Reddit user and have, you know, been around that community for a long time and stuff. And there's almost this thing, this idea that if we don't like something about ourselves, uh, like I'm going to make fun of it and I'm going to call it out before anyone else has a chance to call it out. So that it's almost like they're saying we've accepted, I guess, defeat or our shortcomings, so we're owning them. So no one else can use them against us. But in turn, it just keeps them in this, uh, like, the world is so much better when you get like, you're, you would be so much happier, like they're, it's almost like they're choosing. And I guess this is the whole thing, choosing not to search for happiness, because they're afraid they won't find it.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm sh- I'm sure there's there's lots of things going on in some of their lives that make finding happiness difficult. I imagine it is really difficult to date as a young person right now. I never had to go on Tinder or anything right. like that. It sounds like it's a nightmare, and uh, I think a lot of people are shy and the. There is a bias. There definitely is a bias against unattractive people in our society and people who are less attractive face that bias all the time. And we could do a better job of talking about it. And they very much do talk about it at the same time. I, you know, I think you're absolutely right that they're, they, they're doing the thing where they're, they're trying to be self-effacing and like, like, you know, acknowledge that this thing about themselves that might discredit them to other people. Um, but, it it's, becomes very serious for them very yeah. quickly. It's it's the main the main part of their identity that matters, and it's it's the thing that kind of explains all the shortcomings in their lives, and uh, it's something that they use to make themselves and each other either depressed or angry, and they're regularly talking about um, you know suicide and violence in connection with these these feelings.
0: Hmm. So, okay. I have two questions from that. So how, okay. So my first question is like, are, are there people uh, like yourself, people who are doing research and, and as this is becoming, um, um, more prevalent, uh, people who are trying to, to break down the walls and, and what sort of systems do we have? Are there, like, I feel like, when I hear these stories, I wish I could just talk to one of these guys
3: Yeah, and and like, Hey,
0: like let's go for a beer, you know, and I can, you know, (laughs) know. like, is that, is that a reality? Does that exist? Uh, I think you probably wouldn't
3: have too many people who take you up uh, on the offer to get a beer, but I think it's great that you would offer to do that. I think that it it, engaging with them, I think it needs both, both sympathy, uh, you know, just for fellow people who are going through tough time, but it also needs some, uh, like, I guess some sternness or some hardness, because a lot of things that they do are absolutely non-starters for social behavior, the misogyny and yeah. And like real, real caustic misogyny, like some of the, they're universally using degrading terms for women. uh, And it's, it's, you know, they're developing their own jargon to be misogynistic. Uh, So very, very heavy on the misogyny and harassment and denigrating thoughts towards women. Um, and then, of course, the connections to violence that the, the U.S. government raised this week. The, there are people who are looking in, into how do we deal with this, this issue. And I think there's, there's kind of like a, a a hardline response that's getting more traction at the moment, which is just shutting down the forums that they have to engage. So hmm. every, every time that there's, you know, whether it was Manassian or Davison, every time an attack like that happens, a lot of the websites get shut down and they have to migrate somewhere else. And so people are trying to trying to disrupt the recruitment of incels by trying to, you know, change how the YouTube algorithm works, change how the Google algorithm works, make it harder to find these communities online, make it harder for, for men to go from kind of red pill, anti-feminist communities over to incel communities. I think the, pro, the issue that you raise, you know, how do we reach these people as, as people and how do we uh, help them in a more substantive way? Because even if we shut down their communities, there's a lot of there's going to be a lot of men out there who are really like angry and aggrieved and bitter and hating society and women and themselves. And that's still a big problem. That's the much more difficult problem to, to address and one that we don't have a good answer for at the moment. I think there's there are some um, um, former incels who have done uh, things in the media talking, talking towards Uh, um, current members and explaining why they left the community. And I think that stuff is probably is going to end up being the most impactful because it's the people who were who were members and who leave it and and accept like their perspective of the world and then explain how their perspective changed that I think is going to be more most convincing for the current members. I think. It's very easy for them to dismiss people like me and you, because we're, we live in a world of advantage as far as they're, they're concerned. Hmm. And we don't really understand, uh, what it's like to be an incel. And we give them the same, the same old routine that they're interested in hearing, which is self-improvement, just be confident, just keep plucking away. And they think that that's all uh, BS in short.
0: Hmm. So do you think that, um, the media, and obviously we need to talk about these things, uh, as a society makes it, makes it worse. I, yeah. I'm whether it makes it worse or not,
3: I'm not too sure. I mean, the media definitely has to focus on the the fact that uh, there's a threat there. And I think, you know, we started off talking about what are, who are incels? What's that word even? And mm-hmm. that's important. You know, we need to, we need to know who these people are. We need to know about their, their ties to violence. That tends to get a lot of the media headlines and for good reason, And, um, you know, frankly, I think as someone who studies the community it's a question of when, not if there will be another, Hmm. another act of violence at the same time, I think one of the things that the media could do and academics, frankly, uh, anybody who talks about incels, including myself is do, um, a better job of not just talking about the anti-social stuff, but also talking about some of the underlying social issues, the type of stuff that you're getting at with this conversation, actually
0: yeah because I mean so much of it just seems like okay uh, like we kind of established the internet while it can be a fantastic tool for good it can also be um, very isolating and yeah. and it has a lot of like dark deep corners that sometimes you get into them and and it, it's almost like a drug you know and uh, I, I also wonder to myself like it like is the, is there and maybe you can speak to this too is there Any degree of like mental illness that runs with this, like, is this something that like good parenting can prevent, like teaching your kids or all of that type of stuff? Like how do, how did, I mean, we talked about what are incels, but like, are there things that we can like identify? Oh, my, my son's kind of going down this road and I need to like get involved in this way.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think in general the the social sciences are are universally agreed that good parenting is a great thing to sure. have a great yeah, thing yeah, to have yeah. For, yeah. for every outcome. So so the 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 more connected you are as a parent with, with your the children, uh boys, girls, whatever, the the better it will be for them. And I, I think that's definitely true. There are mental health issues in this community without doubt. Um you would, I mean, I'm not a psychiatrist. I can't diagnose anybody, but you go online and it's very quickly clear that there's a lot of body dysmorphia. Um, there's a lot like the way that they talk about their bodies is just like, as a fellow man, I've just literally never thought about my body in that way. And it's just like, Oh wow, that's wild that you're looking at that part of yourself. Um, there's a lot of depression, um, a lot of talk of self-harm. So I think there, there really is, um, uh, I think an underplayed element of, um, uh, of mental health problems that are among these people, particularly because they're, they feel isolated and alone. And one of the great things about a relationship is just that companionship and affection you get, and they are constantly defining themselves by not having that. So, you know, naturally that's going to be difficult.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, man, I, I, I'm I feel like there's so this is a huge, yeah. deep, uh very full conversation. And it's like it it's it sort of um it's like what came first, the chicken or the egg, and, and like how how you kind of deal with this. But um maybe just talk a little bit about uh because I know you you deal a lot with social isolation and it feels like that's a that's a huge thing with this. Um, Cause I'm sure there are people that are going to be listening to this that are, you know, we were on in the middle of the night and people are just <laughs> on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm one of them, you know, yeah. where I just like, I, I love being online and I love the online community and stuff. And it's really easy to sort of just stay there just stay there. And next thing you know, you haven't left the house in three days and you're, you know um, maybe talk a little bit about that. And, and um, I guess like the day, are the, if there are dangers there and, like maybe what people could look for or um, how we can sort of, I guess, keep ourselves in check and not let the, the dangers of the internet drag us too deep into the, into the muck and mire.
3: Yeah. And I mean, it's particularly difficult with COVID when we've been like forced yeah. to, to live online more than anything, I think in terms of, of dangers or warning signs, it's, is really the, t- the types of communities that you see people in- engaging with. So um, the, the, uh 4chan is is a starting point for many people who end up migrating to incel websites uh so the really infinite infamous 4chan board is politically incorrect but it's not actually so much that one it's this other one called robot 9000 that's for uh primarily for people who were who were incels or identify similar to incels so that that community is is a bit of a gateway and then Many people that I've talked to who who have expressed to me that they either are incels or former incels uh, talk about being on YouTube and going just watching some regular content and then seeing things that are are kind of more alt righty uh, red pill type type of, of things where they're complaining about women complaining about feminism um, I won't name particular people, sure. but those, those type of YouTube channels that are, are fairly popular and they pop up all the time. And from those communities is they get the first exposure to, to the term incel and that there's, there's incels out there. And from there, it's very easy to Google these communities and find out who they are and then end up joining one. So I would say, I would say those, t- those types of communities are, are usually like a bit of an early warning sign. I think when you see anyone uh, socially withdrawing, um, you know, primarily uh, uh, doing things online rather than in person. And again, that's very hard now with right. COVID to, to see is a, even something resembling a red flag. Um, and then I think, you know, changes in self-esteem and how people are talking about, uh, about their bodies and sexuality, that um, rather than thinking about that as, as maybe just a phase, thinking of that as, as pot- potentially like a, an indicator that someone's going through this kind of identity shift where they're aligning with incels. And then the other uh, warning sign I would say um, is even though they uh, often try to disguise the extent of their opinion, uh, certain opinions uh, like focusing particularly on lookism, the, the idea that attractive people receive a, a bunch of social benefits is definitely demonstrated in, in social science uh, uh, very extensively, but that's a key component of the incel community is one of the major buy-ins is that you have to believe that attractive people uh, get everything in the world and unattractive people, even average looking people are, are socially penalized. That would be a big warning flag. And I think in terms of what we can do, I think just foster human connection and engagement Mm -hmm. as much as you can, given an ongoing pandemic and talk to the, the men and boys in your life about, about being men and about being boys. And uh, not putting so much emphasis on masculine identity being tied to heterosexual sex, which is one of the things that um, these men are, are really beating themselves up over.
0: Yeah. I mean, like we said off, off the beginning there, like it's OK if yeah. <laughs> like I mean, I, one of the things that I just think is so uh, I guess that the internet has made like the 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 distance that we've come in the last twenty years in our acceptance of like LGBTQ uh, yeah. uh, people making different lifestyle choices, whatever whatever those look like. I mean, and not just you know LGBTQ stuff, like wh- whatever you choose to do with your life. I feel like the world has become so much more accepting. And yeah. then there's this where it's like, oh, and this has gone the other way, you know. So. Um, but like, like you say that fostering human connection. I love that. And I think that's so important. And that's, you know, what we're trying to do here on the shift. So um, yeah, M- Michael Halpin, thank you so much thank for you. the work that you're doing. And I really appreciate your time and everything. Yeah. Is there like a resource that or like a website? Where could we start if people want to know more?
3: If people wanna know more about my research in particular, uh, they can just uh, Google my name and my publications are on online. And if people wanna uh, learn more about uh, incels in general, I would, in general, I would say Wikipedia is a good starting point and, and, and start with, start with some of the articles in like the New York times and, and Vox and, and medium rather than I would say diving into an incel website itself. Sure,
0: Perfect. (laughs) Well, again, I, I appreciate your time and and the work that you're doing and uh, hopefully we'll speak again soon. Yeah. Sounds great. This is the shift podcast the world uh, is in a bit of a, a crazy state. We all kind of know that and recognize it. And one of the things that always kind of like helps ground me when stuff like that is happening is when I look and I see that like our our people, humanity, uh, us as a, as a global society, that we're actually moving forward, like we're progressing, you know, and science is one of the places where we do that. And Sometimes I'll just take a break from all the heavy news and I'll look at some science stuff and I'm shocked at the amazing things uh, that are happening that people are like, you know, inventing and creating and researching. And it, it really is uh, mind boggling what we can do as a society and as a as a species. Check this out. This is a, an article on space.com essentially suggesting that humans we're not we're a ways off yet but the technology exists even if just in theory for us to actually build the uss enterprise from star trek it can be built the technology that has gone into that thing from that legendary tv series movies everything i mean okay we need to upscale it a bit we need to you know a lot, you know, there's a lot more work to be done, but in theory, it's there. Who would have ever thought that that could actually be a thing? It's mind blowing, and I find it so. So, so, so cool. But it's complicated. There's a lot to it. So here to help us kind of unpack and understand uh, how long this is actually going to take and what the realistic, uh, reality, re- realistic chances of us having a Starship Enterprise are, from Weird Science Radio, it's Andrew Ferreira. Thanks so much for being with us, Andrew. Uh, so am I to understand this right? We're actually going to get a USS Enterprise? No. Oh, uh, okay. But I mean, like, we're like on the road there. We're, we're moving in that direction.
4: Yes, we're on the road in the sense that, you know, uh, the Wright brothers strapped some wood to some other wood to some canvas before uh, the Concord flew, right? We're, we're, we're very, very, very much uh, nowhere remotely close, unfortunately, Um, which is a shame. And I don't like saying that, but one of the things I always say about science fiction is that, uh, generally most of the time it ends up being left in that realm. It's very rare that the, the coolest parts of science fiction actually come home to roost in reality.
0: Right. Yeah. Like I'm still waiting for a real life lightsaber, right? Like an actual lightsaber, not just a toy. That's basically a flashlight.
4: Yeah, I saw there was some guy, I can't remember where it was, but there was some video where it was essentially like a like a jerry-rigged, almost like a welding torch that right. looked like a lightsaber. And I was like, okay, we're getting there. But no, a, a lot of science fiction does tragically kind of just get left in that realm. Uh, and the big issue with the Starship Enterprise uh, isn't necessarily, um, you know, the cost, although that is, of course, a problem, um, or the materials, though that could be a problem. Um, or even something like... Uh, You know, in Star Trek, they they specify that the USS Enterprise was built in space. That's actually one of the things that I think will become reality. I do think that uh, manufacturing um, will, you know, move into space because it's just a lot easier. There's no gravity to mess with all your stuff, right? You don't have to keep things, like, you know, tied down. You don't need to weigh things down. Um, If you need to do things in a strange, funky, like... um, uh, like position or in an orientation, like you're welding something in a weird spot. You don't have to like maneuver people around in weird ways. You can just kind of rotate it in space because it's floating. Um, and there's a lot of weird things that metal does in space too, like it can cold weld. So in space, if you have two pieces of bare metal and you just kind of stick them together, they will stay stuck together because on earth, uh, in the atmosphere, there's a layer of oxides. On, on the metals and that usually is what prevents like this cold welding from happening on earth but in space there's no atmosphere uh, so these metals it's it's actually happened on missions where you know pieces of metal have gotten stuck to other pieces of metal um just because they're in the vacuum of space and there isn't that kind of layer of oxide to protect or uh shield the two pieces of metal and they cold weld together there is the weird things like that but That isn't the real issue. The real issue uh with the enterprise is the warp drive, because of course it's the warp drive, because that's the coolest part of it.
0: Okay, yeah, and I'm so glad you brought this up because the warp drive is the whole thing. And I mean, I know we're we're like kind of joking here about building the Starship Enterprise and whether or not we're actually gonna be able to do it, but so much of the article on space.com has to do with these technologies, right? That that are uh, potentially coming and people are working on, and they're actually working on uh creating a warp drive or at least the idea behind it but then there's this idea of antimatter and fueling it and how complex that all is and it talked a lot about this and like i read it and then i read it again and i still don't really think i have an accurate grasp on it so see if you can explain that for us what the warp drive is what it does how it works and uh why we probably aren't going to be getting it anytime soon
4: the thing, the first thing that you really need to understand with something like a warp drive isn't the fact that it's making a spacecraft move really fast. Um, as far as we can tell, um, things cannot go faster than the speed of light. Light right. is, you know, the limit. and as things speed up t- towards the speed of light, the universe tends to wag its finger at you and go, you can't do that. And it basically how the math ends up working out. And I'm not a mathematician. Uh, but I have spent way too much time reading these things. Um, but how it works out eventually is that in order for you to accelerate to the speed of light, you need an infinite amount of energy, which is impossible. So basically, the universe has ways to stop you from going the speed of light, but the universe has no rules about you altering space itself. Um, so it's important to imagine, and this comes from uh, Albert Einstein's theory of general relativity. Uh, if This is a super common um, analogy but you'd imagine space being like a trampoline um right you put a bowling ball into the middle it'll dip Uh, and then if you roll balls into that trampoline they'll orbit that bowling ball just like planets will orbit a sun and that dip is what essentially gravity kind of looks like it's not a complete analogy but it's good enough for what we're doing um and basically what the warp drive proposes what it would do ideally is essentially instead of you know rolling a ball across the trampoline you essentially bunch up the trampoline kind of behind the bowling ball and you stretch it out in front so that the bowling ball doesn't actually move, but the trampoline does. That's what the warp drive does. It doesn't, you know, necessarily move you. It moves the space around you and containing you to wherever you want to be.
0: Okay, so I think I get it. And there were some great diagrams on the space.com article that kind of outlined this. But now- If you're moving the trampoline mat underneath the bowling ball, what happens if there's already another bowling ball on that mat? Does that move as well or does that stay stationary or does it transport to another place? I mean, there's so many crazy implications uh, that would come as a result of something like this. I mean, it's incredibly cool. But have we thought of all of these details?
4: Yeah, um, conventional wisdom says whatever was in the way um, is now atomized. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> uh, don't get in the way of this thing. Uh, essentially, what you'd want what you'd want is this giant essentially bubble of space that is unperturbed um, by the universe around it to that moves through you know the universe itself. Uh, and if anything messes with that bubble, uh, that's probably not a good time. Uh, That's why you see in movies like even like if you uh, think back to Star Wars and other sci-fi shows and movies, when people are in warp drive, there is always this. They always talk about the danger of, you know, it's easy to jump. It's easy to, you know, dump out a warp like in a star. So like these problems still exist because you're still traveling through the universe. You're just not traveling uh, in, in the same way that a propellant based spacecraft would. You are literally you're not really moving. Space is moving which to mess with people's heads. Uh, So to put it short, if there's someone in the way, don't be in the way.
0: Okay, good to know. Uh, Now, one of the other things that the article talks about is that in order to uh, facilitate this warp drive, warp speedness, uh, we need something called antimatter to fuel it. And uh, while we have been able to create antimatter, the amount that we actually need versus what we've been able to actually create, uh, essentially, it's like almost an impossibility. Uh, explain that.
4: Yeah. No. And. In- if you're depending on what version of warp drive you're looking at um, you know the, the famous one is uh, Miguel uh, Miguel alcubierre's, uh warp drive he was kind of you know from the early to mid 90s he this was that whole warp bubble idea yeah um, other people have come along with their own you know versions of it but generally it's alcubierre's warp drive is the one that people look at in order to make alcubierre's warp drive work uh, you need something called negative energy or a negative mass. And that's just something that is purely theoretical, let alone, you know, a a substance we can create, like antimatter, which I'll get to in a second. Uh, But negative energy, negative mass, um, no. As far as we can tell, it isn't real. Um, Theoretically, it could be created. The math says, you know, the math allows for it to be created. But whether or not it's within our, our, you know, the, you know, within the, the realm of humanity's abilities, uh, is another question. Uh, so that's kind of a bummer. Um, and then you get to antimatter, and we can make antimatter, which a lot of people blows their mind. Like, we actually can, and we do. Like, this is what they do at CERN uh, and other particle accelerators around the world. Um, this is You know, it's not like necessarily that they're creating antimatter. It's It's almost funny that a lot of these experiments, antimatter is just a happy side effect. Of, of the work that they're actually doing, which is, you know, trying to break uh, particles apart to see what makes them up. Um, but the issue with antimatter is that all antimatter will annihilate with regular matter upon contact. And so storing antimatter uh, is kind of a problem considering everything is made out of matter. You like, can't put it in a glass jar because the glass jar will vaporize and probably so will you.
0: Okay. So I'm I'm confused here. How do we even know uh that that we did this then, that we made antimatter? Like what does that what does that even look like? It's just there for a split second and then it's gone? More or less. Yeah. It, okay.
4: it doesn't last very long, um, you know, in, in the wilds of a of the reaction chamber of a particle accelerator. There's particles and stuff flying everywhere. Um, but the way that we can tell, and we have, you know, observed, you know, uh, particles of, of, of antimatter before, like it's not necessarily uh, new per se, uh, you know, electrons, for instance, are negatively charged particles, they, you know, they exist around the, ad- uh, the nucleus of the atom, um, the, you know, the antimatter com- uh, um, component of them is the positron, it has a positive charge, it's the exact same particle, it just has an opposite charge. So it's easy enough to... Um, you know, to create and visually go, hey, we've made, you know, antimatter. Look, it's right here, and now it's gone. Um, There are ways that we could theoretically make antimatter, but it would require essentially a, per- a store antimatter. Um, we could use some kind of, like, magnetic field to contain it, but that magnetic field would have to be within a, uh, a, a like, a vacuum, because the second any particle of normal matter gets in there... um. I hope you like gigantic fireballs. But to what you were saying about how, you know, we make antimatter, we don't make nearly enough. We really don't make nearly enough. Um, the, space art- the space.com article, um, this is a fun stat that I actually didn't know, um, but the Fermi, uh, Fermilab in the States is one of the, the, the accelerators that makes antimatter and does these kind of deep particle experiments. Um, you know, in, in one hour, essentially, uh, Fermilab can create enough antimatter to power one, one thousandth of a watt, which is nothing. <laughs> so, and to make that, you know, make that number, make a little bit more sense. They say, you know, uh, in order to, you know, power a single light bulb, uh, you would need a hundred thousand Fermilabs, you know, working for an hour straight.
0: Right. Yeah. So, uh, not exactly the most efficient use of our time.
4: No. Um, there are, you know, technologies being researched, um, that could see humans to other star systems. Uh, for instance, ion drives, uh, okay. which are used extensively on, on spacecraft already, for, but mostly for positioning uh, or slight maneuvers. They essentially just accelerate a gas out the back with a magnetic field. Um, and it's very lightweight, very weak, but over a long period of time, it can accelerate spacecraft to absurd speeds.
0: Okay, so I'm very glad that you brought this up because yeah, let's talk like a bit realistically here. Like maybe it's not in the immediate future, but we hear all sorts of talk about uh, space tourism. Like we know Jeff Bezos is doing is doing his thing. And I get that that's like not a warp drive or anything, but you mentioned off the top, you know, the Concorde. Like there was a time that we had like supersonic commercial air travel for like what we had one plane and now it's been sort of decommissioned or taken out of commission or whatever. But we are getting closer to, uh, unlocking some of this stuff, like navigating the globe way faster and, and, and space tourism and space travel for people who are just interested in it. Like, where are we at on that progression and that timeline?
4: I would say, you know, if, if we're really looking at, you know, the, the next coming, if you will, uh, of Concord or Concord's children, um, there's a couple of uh, aerospace companies that are hot on that tail. Uh, the, the big one that comes to mind is Boom Aerospace, I believe is what they're called. Um, boom or Boo, something like that. Uh, and basically, they want to have supersonic flights in the next, you know, four or five years. Wow. Uh, with, their, with their new spacecraft. The issue with supersonic flights, as Concorde proved, though, was the sonic booms uh, are allowed. Dis- but the issue is a lot of countries have since banned the overflight of supersonic aircraft, um, just because people think of the sonic boom as this momentary kapow, and it's done. But what actually happens is the sonic boom follows the aircraft as it travels. I see. So the boom follows it as it goes. So even if it you know, enters supersonic speed over the ocean, as it crosses over to land, It's going to drag a boom with it. So one way that a lot of the new companies are trying to get around that is by only allowing supersonic speeds over water. Um, So basically, let's say you wanted to fly from Vancouver to Tokyo. You could take off from Vancouver International Airport, uh, fly over Vancouver Island for, you know, an hour at subsonic speeds. And once you're clear of land, you just jet it uh, and you drop back out of supersonic, you know, as you approach Japan. Uh, But that does mean that you can't say go Vancouver to New York. So there's all sorts of issues. But to loop back to, you know, using space as real space travel, for the average person, um, I really still think we're at least 50 years out. I just think that there's just so much inherent danger that people don't really realize with space travel. And of course, people will say, well, of course, all sorts of disasters happen in aviation. And while that's true, the kinds of disasters, and we've seen it with the aftermath of, of tragedies like the Challenger disaster, in the grand scheme of things, it was only a handful of people who, who, who died. Uh, but the result of that was, you know, a multiple year-long shutdown of the entire shuttle program. There's just so much more that can go wrong. And there's and the margins of error are essentially nil compared to aviation, and aviation's margins of errors are quite thin. Um, if you you know if you mess up in space, you know no one can hear you scream. No one can hear you scream, and there <laughs> won't be a magical pilot who can land you in the Hudson River. Right. Yep. Exactly. See, movie
0: references they work so well.
4: So yeah, I think we're uh, we're a long way out. Uh, yeah, I'm not sad about that. I think I think we'll get there to you know human space travel. Yeah, I would just be glad if it happened within my lifetime.
0: Great. So the long and short of it is that I uh, don't have to worry about a moon sized uh, space station shooting uh, planet killing lasers at Earth anytime soon. Not yet. Not yet. Andrew Ferreira, host of Weird Science Radio, talking all things space, space travel, the future of interdimensional, planetarial, matter-destroying space travel, however uh, you like to phrase it or understand it. Thanks so much for helping us uh, understand and uh, putting to rest some of our fears and maybe giving light to uh, some of our hopes. Andrew Ferreira, thanks. Yeah, man.